0: Well, good evening. Let me add my welcome to Chris. Uh, mine is, My name is Rod, and we're starting this series uh, through these eight topics, at least, uh, through Proverbs. So we had our introduction last week, and tonight, as we look at work and then get into a whole series, uh, we'll be working through what's um, outlined in the booklet. So let me pray for us as we come to a topic which you know, affects all of our lives— And please keep in mind as we come to this topic tonight that I'm not specifically going to be speaking about paid work, although a lot of the principles in it relate especially to that, but it relates to all work, our whole life, our waking hours, if you like. So keep that in mind as you hear the principles that we're going to consider that God's Word unpacks for us in terms of work. But let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this topic. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this evening. Uh, We thank you for your word given to us, uh, that in it uh, we can know life, uh, be brought back into a right relationship with you through faith in your son, the Lord Jesus, but also then learn how to live in the light of your word and your instruction, your wisdom given to us. And especially as we think about this topic of work uh, that takes up such a large part of our lives. Lord, we pray tonight that you might challenge us afresh uh, where we need challenging, encourage us where we need encouragement in what you have on our plate at this time. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever thought that you have a hard job or perhaps a difficult role that you play? Maybe you're feeling that right at the moment with your current workplace or whatever fills your week, study or otherwise. I discovered a website a few years ago called worstjob.com, and they encouraged people to email in the details of their daily drudgery to sort of outdo each other about who had the worst job. And I thought, you know, the funeral director and embalmer had a pretty good case. He was a guy that worked six days a week, 12 hours a day, was on call at night and most weekends as well, and um, had a boss who lived upstairs, um, who owned the place, would wander down about 10am, announced that he was going out to golf for the day, disappear for a few hours and when he came back would then say that his car needed to be vacuumed and washed and all on top of the man's role as caring for the bodies that were brought into the funeral parlour, for picking up all the rubbish, cleaning every nook and cranny of this mortuary and all of that after four years at college and then another additional year at mortuary school. I thought he had a fair argument. But you know, it could be outdone. I I saw a really good ad. Um, There's a recent ad in the United States for airport security screeners. It's become such a big thing, hasn't it, in the last few years? And um, I don't know about this recent ad, but you tell me what you think. They were honest, at least. This is a very physically demanding job. You have to stand up for four hours without a break, lift 70-pound bags, walk the equivalent of two miles every shift. You're expected to maintain your cool while dealing with constant stress from noise, crowds and disruptive and angry passengers, which you can't let distract you from your main task and that is to ferret out what is described as devices intended on creating massive destruction. And for this, you'll be paid $13.91 an hour. Uh, you'll work most weekends, holidays, odd hours, and you're on probation for two years and could be fired at any point during that time. Well, I don't know if they were rushed after that at or not. I can't see people rushing and throwing up their hand for that one. Maybe you're feeling better about your job now. But, of course, an occupation doesn't have to be... Uh, arduous or difficult or even laced with danger or frustration uh, to make us feel that work is difficult at times, to feel uh, the weight and burden of it being often less than satisfying. And I think there's a haunting sense of that for every person at some point in their life. We can think that the thing that we're doing, that we're spending so many hours working on, is purposeless in the long run. After all, what we're doing might be undone next week or even tomorrow. And yet, work takes up such a large part of our lives. And so, how are we to think about this, particularly if you've come to faith in Jesus and you're a believer here tonight? How are you to think about this large part of your life? What does the Bible have to say? And so, my big question for us tonight is this How should Christians think about work? How should Christians think about work? What does the Bible have to tell us? Well, my first answer to that question is this. We should work hard. We should work hard. Have a look again at Proverbs. It has a lot to say about work, but have a look at chapter 10 again, verses 4 and 5. Here Solomon writes, "'Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. "'He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son,' but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. You see, in the world of Proverbs, work is good, it is right, it brings a reward, there is an outcome from it. And in contrast, to be somebody who is lazy or idle is to be disgraceful in this passage, presumably also to fail to provide for yourself or perhaps your family if you have one. And this is a theme right through the book of Proverbs. Uh, Elsewhere in Proverbs, this theme of avoiding poverty by working hard and providing for your daily needs is stated even more strongly. So hence our second passage that you heard read, Proverbs 24. Notice again from verse 30. Here is Solomon giving a picture as he observed somebody that he thought was less than diligent. "'I went past the field of a sluggard, "'past the vineyard of someone who has no sense.'" Thorns had come up everywhere, the ground was covered with weeds, stone walls in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and I learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief, and scarcity like an armed man. Again, this theme that work produces positive outcomes, and so work is wise. Work can bring rewards. God's people aren't to seek to live a life of idleness, but to actually value work. And this is a theme that runs not only through Proverbs, but it must be said right through Scripture in the New Testament as well. So let me take you to one example uh, to prove that point. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, the Apostle Paul is making a very similar point as he uh, writes to a group of believers at the church church at Thessalonica. From verse 6, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother, notice that, every other Christian who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. For when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. So here's Paul. He's at pains, isn't he, to point out that he himself worked really hard while he was with these people. And yet he was somebody that might have seen himself as an exception. He was... A missionary, an apostle who was planting churches, he there brought the gospel to them. He might have received support from those people, but he deliberately received none so that he might demonstrate to them as new believers that we need to work hard. And so he worked hard himself with those who were serving with him. Deliberately provide an example. Idleness, laziness is not a godly response, Paul is saying. This is not how a Christian thinks or acts. Rather, work is central to our lives. But we might say, but why is that so? And we, we so often would wish it were otherwise. Well, because it reflects God's creation purposes from the very beginning in Genesis 1. And what sits behind that even more strongly is that it reflects God's character. You see, in Genesis 1, we see in creation, all of creation God assessed as good as he completed each day, as he completed the six days, and said, "All is very good," and that included work. I think we often like to think uh, that work was somehow came after the fall, and that was as a result of sin. You know, prior to Adam and Eve mucking things up, there was no work to do. Not true. It was part of God's plan from the beginning. Work is not something that's. Uh, just added on later, but it's central to our purpose in our lives. God gives tasks to Adam and Eve from the very beginning, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Now, of course, some people want to recoil um, from that kind of thinking. You know, they say, well, surely the only good thing about work is getting to the end of it. And so people will say, thank God, it's Friday. We've got to the end of the working week. Let's have a break. But it's not the Christian attitude, or at least it shouldn't be. Work is not something to be loathed or to avoid wherever possible. Uh, People might walk around with coffee mugs that say, I love work, I can watch it for hours. But that's not supposed to be our attitude as we turn up each day. It's not a nasty necessity, but it's actually who we are. I've been wired as people who will work. We're made in the image of God, and God presents himself as a worker from the very beginning in creation, in Genesis 1 and 2. In the creation account, we see God putting this world together, as it were, over the six days, presented as a worker, and that we, as those made in his image, are wired and are to reflect his character and his likeness in this way. But I think as we apply these biblical principles further, uh, it's easy to say on the one hand that idleness or laziness is not a good thing. We've probably heard that from our parents at some point in our life growing up, anyway. But there is an opposite error, isn't there? Yes, there is a danger that we can become idle, looking to shirk work. But there is a danger, on the other hand, where work becomes our God, it becomes an idol in our life. And this is an equally wrong response. And I guess I'd want to put it to you tonight that that's an attitude to work that's actually quite rife in sections of our community, and I'd say amongst many Christians as well, where their whole lives are taken up with a focus on work. If some people have too low a view of work and despise it, others actually make it their God. And I think we see this in two ways. If you were to say to me, well, how would I know if... I myself or a friend of mine or a loved one is somebody who has made work an idol in their life. How would I test that? Well, I think it expresses itself in two ways. Firstly, uh, work becoming an idol expresses itself in somebody's identity being completely wrapped up with what they do. And so a person with such an outlook says, I am what I do. This is the assumption. A person looks to their job for satisfaction, indeed meaning in life. And they're very proud often of their occupation. And so you could test yourself on this. If somebody meets you for the first time, they come up to you and they're asking about you, who you are, is the thing that you rush to straight away your job, what you do? And so you say to them proudly, I'm an accountant. I am a teacher. I am an engineer. Or do you say something like, look, as a follower of Jesus, my value, my esteem comes from being loved by him, and I'm here to serve him in whatever way I can in my life? They're, very, they're two very different answers, and they come from two different places. It's a good test of our heart, because our world wants to measure things on. Whatever job our society wants to see as most important, that'll be the one that has the biggest price tag with it. That is the one that gets paid the most. And so they want to rank people and value them in this way. But that is not how a believer looks at their working life. Not how they should look at it. Well, of course, there's another way to test yourself or another um, aspect that comes out of this idolatry of work. It can manifest itself, too, in a person who is simply a workaholic. I mean, Maybe you can think of someone. Maybe you've been that person at some point in your life. Uh, Maybe you are now. Where every waking hour, you're just thinking about work. Even at night, you can hardly sleep because you're thinking about the things you need to do tomorrow. You think about if, if that job was taken away from you or that other person you're thinking of, would they be lost at that moment? They would have no reason to get up tomorrow morning. There's no purpose in living if it weren't for this task That is all encompassing for them, which eats up as many hours outside of the working hours as it does in it. They work incessantly. The problem is that work is not the goal of life. We don't merely exist to work. And again, this is provided by God's example at the very beginning in the Genesis creation account. What happens after the six days of God's work and creation? Well, day seven, he rests, of course. And this Hebrew word rest speaks of peace and satisfaction and enjoyment. And God longs that we might enter into his rest, enjoy his creation with him. Is it any surprise that not long into the life of God's people, Israel, as the 10 commands are unfolded, one of those commands is that you must have a day off. Some of us need to hear that. He didn't decide, uh, design us as machines, mere units of production. Rather, we're people made in his image and we reflect, reflect his character. We're actually to live in relationship with our maker and with those around us in a way that is healthy. That's important for us physically, psychologically, socially, spiritually. You tell me, has anybody ever got to the point on their deathbed where they're saying, oh, if only I'd spent more hours at the office. I just wished I'd worked harder and spent more time burying myself under that paperwork. We don't hear these lines, do we? But we often hear the opposite. Often hear the opposite. Why wait until that point to examine our lives and see whether we're in balance or completely imbalanced? Consider... Where we stand on this issue of idleness at one extreme versus workaholism at the other. And sometimes these two manifestations of work as an idol come together. Some would argue you can't have one without the other, both workaholism and self identity completely tied up. Judith Bardwick is a highly regarded American psychologist, management consultant, business guru, speaks into the top sort of CEOs of all the top companies in the US. And she says this. For workaholics, all the eggs of self-esteem are in the basket of work. Look, if you do have tendencies to that end of the spectrum, I want to challenge you tonight to stop. Stop doing that. You are harming yourself and you are harming everyone around you. If you live that way, now, I'm not saying you know, there'll be moments in our working life where it's really busy for a period and then perhaps it slows down. But if you're somebody that is on 24-7, year after year after year, and everyone around you knows that you are like that and that it's affecting everything else in your life, then it is time to stop. Not just for your own sake, but for their sake. What does it look like when somebody lives like that? It's not only that they lack rest and you might say, oh, well, look, I can live on three or four hours sleep and I can work really hard. I can, you know, We all wake at work at different paces. Absolutely, this can be true. But it's not just about you and your rest and whether you're functioning or coping. You may not be, even if you think you are. But think of about the impact of those around you. So often when this is happening, if the person is married, there is huge strain on the marriage relationship because your spouse has very little time to see you. If you have children, then they get very little investment from you. This is why people wake up after 18 or 20 years and think, my child has grown up and I've really spent very little time with them. I don't know who they are. We say, oh, that'll never happen. It happens over and over and over. Don't just think about your closest relationships. Think about What should be your number one relationship? And that is with God. So often people say, Oh, look, well, I've struggled to get to church. I can't be part of a home group. And, you know, look, I'm not really reading my Bible every day or praying, but, you know, I haven't got time to do that. I've got to get off to work at 5 a.m., and there's this and that, and I'm busy. Really? If God has been pushed to the fringes of your life because your work is so taken over, I want to tell you, you have a new God. You have the great God substitute of work. Don't let it happen. That brings me to a second point. Point two. If we're to answer this question, how should Christians think about work? Firstly, they should work hard, with the caveat that they don't become workaholics. But secondly, we should realise that work is subject to frustration. Work is subject to frustration. It's going to be difficult. Proverbs is not the only part of the wisdom literature which addresses this topic of work. In fact, the very writer that we have in Proverbs of Solomon speaks elsewhere about work in a very different fashion in Ecclesiastes. Let me take you there. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. Have a listen to what he says here. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I'd toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool, yet he'll have control over all the work into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So I began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. See, I think Proverbs has a more positive view. Work has good outcomes. We need to work, and that will lead to us providing for ourselves. There is a reward in work that comes. But here, work just just seems frustrating, doesn't it? It's almost bad. It's almost something that debases you. You Look at the words, the descriptive words, the verbs here. It's grievous. It's meaningless. It's toil, effort, labor, despair. He goes on to talk in the verses that follow about misfortune anxious, striving, pain and grief, even a mind that does not rest at night. And so despite us being created in the image of God, the worker, and work initially being an unspoilt part of God's creation, Genesis 1 and 2, it's now corrupted. Corrupted, marred by sin, the entrance of sin from Genesis 3. And so Ecclesiastes 2 is reflecting that marred, frustrated Existence that now is our working life. This sense that things can be undone, that it has no lasting impact, that there's no legacy, that things can be erased or forgotten so quickly. Uh, Towards the end of high school, I started working for um, my father. There was a family business, a building supply company uh, in Sydney, and I loved this place when I was growing up as a younger child. You would go there, they sold sand and cement and all the usual building products, and I could run over the sand hills. People would take me for a ride on the tractor or the forklift or whatever it might be. But when I returned there as a teenager and then into my uni years, this was not a place of joy. Uh, This was a place where I got to bag sand for 10 hours a day in the hot sun. This was usually over summer when I was most available, especially while I was at uni. And this machine, yes, it brought the, bag, um, the soil along on a conveyor belt so that I could bag it. We were lifting 30 or 40 kilo bags under pallets all day. I wasn't built for that, for starters. But secondly, it was very hot work, and this thing was so loud, you had industrial deafness in about five minutes. I think it took them two years to give me some earmuffs to protect me. And I would often get to the end of the day, and the only satisfaction would be this huge pile of bags, maybe a couple of hundred, that would be then for sale for traders to come along and use in their jobs and take upstairs into units and so on. But more often than not, just before 5 p.m., someone would rock up with their big truck at 10 to 5, and they'd buy the entire lot. And I'd work out of the gate thinking, I've got nothing to show for all my hours under the sun. This is so hopeless. Well, this is the kind of picture that we're getting, isn't it, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. There's this sense of, well, dig the hole, fill it in again, dig the hole, fill it in again. What is this leading to? But notice that Solomon is aware of what he's written in Proverbs and he gives us, I guess, a rounded summary of how do we hold the fact that work is, yes, good and yet that's subject to frustration. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 24, he concludes this. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. See, Despite the frustration, we're still made to work. We're still in God's image. And like him, we are to work. And work is still a means to an end. It provides for us. We can therefore eat. We can provide for others. More than that, there is some sense of reward or satisfaction that comes in working. But I think we're left with this lingering question mark. But what about this issue he's raised early in the question about, in the passage about legacy? You now, What stops this being forgotten? And what about the issue of death after someone dies? What, what then? Does anyone remember? Does it, is it meaningful as a result? That brings us to the third answer uh, to our question. How should Christians think about work? And that is this Jesus redeems our work. Jesus redeems our work. You see, for work to be redeemed from this frustration, we need to be redeemed firstly from our sin, from our turning away from God as our maker, where we go to self rule and doing things our own way. If we're forgiven of our rejection, of God, and we come to salvation through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus, then this will change things. It will bring a new perspective. But you might think, well, how? You know, what difference does Christ's death and resurrection mean for turning up at work tomorrow? How can our salvation redeem this frustrating nature of work in this fallen world? Well, turn with me to Ephesians 6, verses 7 and 8, because I think we get two valuable principles here that help us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul again writes, Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. So, first principle, verse 7 the big change of perspective for a Christian is that we now work for Jesus. You don't just work for your manager or your CEO. Your ultimate boss is in heaven and he takes account of all things. And this means that our work takes on a new purpose. You're not just fulfilling a function. You're not just trying to make your manager look good or to earn brownie points for yourself that you might get a promotion or whatever. No, you're part, it's part of your service, your worship of God as you give yourself wholeheartedly to what God has given you to do. And so Paul says in verse 7, the result should be that we work wholeheartedly. And that will turn, if we do this, the idolatry of work into service of God. It will turn the potential selfish pursuit of wealth into service of others. It could turn the frustration, the constant frustration, into some sense of fulfillment and direction and purpose in our work. Now, that's not to say that Christians will instantly have a perfect attitude at work uh, the next day. Uh, We know that we all struggle. And it does not mean that all the frustrations of work will suddenly evaporate overnight. It's not going to happen, this side of heaven. But it does mean that we will have a new perspective, that we will think about things differently. We shouldn't see our workplace the same as our non-Christian colleague. If we do, there's something wrong. Because we've come here not just to fulfil this role or to collect a pay packet at the end of the week. We're here to worship God as we serve and use the gifts that he's blessed us with. This is part of my service, which is my life. And so in doing so, we're also imitating Christ and his character. See, what we see as the New Testament fulfils the pictures of Proverbs is that Jesus is the embodiment of the faithful worker, He is the one that comes and truly works diligently and faithfully day after day completes the task that is set before him by his Father in heaven. And there's a number of places in John's Gospel where Jesus says this quite overtly so that we might grasp this point. One example, John 4, verse 34. Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. See, the Bible presents Jesus as the perfect worker whose particular work was to come and to lay down his life to die for us on the cross. And so, referring to his unique work on the cross, do you remember his final words as he was about to, his life was ebbing away? He finally says, It is finished. What's finished? His life? Yes, that's finished. No, his mission, his work, the reason he has come, the Father sent him that he might win a people that will be God's very own, that he would lay down his life so that he would pay as our substitutionary lamb the price, the punishment for our sin. It is finished. And so as we work, we imitate Jesus, the perfect worker. Indeed, we serve him as we work. But there's a second motivation Did you notice in verse 8. And that second motivation is that we will be rewarded by God. Now, I think here we step into territory that's really hard for us in our workplace today because so often people are looking, including Christians, for reward from what we're doing. We want people to notice and appreciate us. There's something natural about that, that I'd be acknowledged for the work that I'm doing. If I'm you know, being diligent day after day and nobody notices or cares, it can be very difficult. But so often that's the case, isn't it? Our boss is indifferent to our efforts, good, bad, or whatever. They seem to take no notice. Or, worse still, there are other colleagues or even the boss who's taking credit for whatever we're doing. And so nothing flows back to us. The acknowledgement goes back to somebody else. How frustrating we find that. It's because we're looking for some kind of earthly acknowledgement, some kind of earthly reward. But God promises a reward in verse 8, did you notice? But the promise is not necessarily that it will be here on earth. God takes account of all things. One day all these things will be laid bare. Everything that we've done, good or bad, will be brought into the light. And so what we're promised here is that God will reward us, but that reward may well be in heaven. It may not come in this life. But on judgment day, everything will be made known. And so you see the lack of reward spoken in Ecclesiastes, the sense of no legacy that things are forgotten and the death cut short any purpose to our our working life is overturned by the cross. In Jesus, we have one who is eternal, who will bring us to be with him and we will be rewarded for that which we've done. Death can't remove the legacy of our work. We do not work in vain in this life if we're in Christ. But it's a struggle for us. We really find this hard. We'd like to see something now. There's this amazing story told of a missionary couple, the Morrisons, who had served for 40 years in Africa. They had been faithful missionaries. They'd seen many people come to place their faith in the Lord Jesus. This was at the end of the 1800s, right up to 1909. Uh, they got to the point where they needed to retire. Their faith, uh, their faith, their health rather, was starting to fail and their mission board said, you need to come home to the United States and we'll get you to serve uh, fruitfully back here. They took the ship in 1909 back. And on the ship that they just happened to be returning to New York Harbour in was also the American president of the day, Theodore Roosevelt. He'd spent the best, month, uh, best part of 12 months in Africa on a big game shoot. Um, it's not PC today, but there he was in lots of photos next to rhinos and elephants and lions that he'd killed, with the whole group that he'd taken over to Africa. But it was a huge deal as he came back as the American president the his success, successful game hunt. And thousands upon thousands of well-wishers turned up in New York Harbour at the docks to welcome the president home. Hundreds of reporters lined up ready to take snaps, uh, write down what had happened in their newspaper articles that would come out that evening. Flags waving, huge signs, welcome home, balloons in a colourful display, bands playing. It was a massive welcome. Roosevelt exits the ship with his entourage to huge acclaim. This couple that were on the ship had to wait until all these... Powerful dignitaries got off, and they'd be able to disembark sometime later. And they thought, well, you know, maybe a few people will be left around by the time we exit. <laughs> by the time they were able to leave the ship, there was not one person left on the pier. Not one person welcomed them, shook their hand, not a word. And as they walked off, they felt pretty heartbroken about it all. As they took their ride back to their uh, one bedroom unit that their mission board had arranged for them, the husband said to his wife, You know, it just it doesn't seem right. 40 years, no one seems to know or care. There's not a person here. But you know, as they prayed that night, they felt God saying to them, You know why you haven't received any reward here? It's because you're not home yet. Your reward is not in this life. It's so true. You think about it for a moment. Imagine one day in the future in heaven, the Morrisons surrounded by thousands of Africans who came to faith, redeemed souls who welcome them and celebrate with God the work that has been done in bringing glory to the Father. Let me ask you, can any celebration on earth exceed that which is to come? I want to say to you, there's nothing on earth that you'll ever be offered that means anything above the approval of your maker. Don't you long above all else to reach heaven and to see your saviour face to face and be told, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our reward. That's what we're longing for. That's what we should be thinking about as we work day by day. See, the problem in our society today is that the goal of work is to have the highest paying job, to get the most respect, everyone to think you're the greatest and get lots of earthly reward and big house and money that goes with it. That's not the purpose of life, is it? The purpose of this life is to have an opportunity to come back into right relationship with the one who gave you life, that you might honour and worship him who designed you to do so. And that you look forward to one day being with your Saviour, that you might enter into his rest. You might enter into a place where there is an unmarred service of God, a return to the Garden of Eden, a return to Genesis 1 and 2 all the corrupting effects of sin and the wrong motivations all removed once and for all. What does that mean? What is the future of work? Uh, What are we longing for in heaven? Is uh, heaven a place full of lounges and beanbags? Uh, We just sort of flop down and uh, everything's at our fingertips all day and we don't need to move for, I don't know, an eternity? Uh, that doesn't appeal to me, actually. I, you know, I'm wanting to do something, or want to be active. What are we to expect? Some people think that idea of just lying down is appealing. Um, maybe we, that's because we need to do more of that now, and we're overworking. But in Revelation, certainly there are promises that Christians will rest from their labor. Absolutely, we enter into God's rest. But the picture is not one of idleness. It'd be very strange, actually, if we read Revelation and we discovered idleness everywhere, given all that we've learned about God's character and the way he wired humanity and set his purposes for this earth from Genesis 1. And so one wonderful picture, and there are several, of course, in Revelation, is in chapter 7. And in verse 15, the Apostle, uh, the Apostle John states, Therefore, speaking of the saved gathered before God, they are before the throne of God and serve him. Day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Notice this picture there is work to be done in the new creation, but here it's joyful service in the presence of God in a perfect environment, freed from all the corruption of rebellion and its impacts on us. Well, look, I want to bring us back to the present because that's what's pressing in as we think about tomorrow. So how do we think about our working life on earth, given what we've seen tonight? What can we learn from this? I think, firstly, we've got to acknowledge that as we turn up tomorrow to our desk or whatever it is, that it's going to be full of frustrations yet again. That our working life this side of heaven will have so much difficulty because of the fall. We can't expect it to be any more than partly fulfilling because God has made it painful toil. Part of his curse in Genesis 3 is that our work would be cursed, that it's going to be painful toil, that there's going to be thorns and thistles, that things are not as they should be. It's part of his judgment on all of humanity because of sin. And so our experiences reflect this day by day. But we must go in then with eyes open as believers. And rather than being constantly frustrated, as Christians, we need to grasp the perspective of Proverbs too and affirm that work is right and good. That I don't want to be idle, that I want to be diligent, that it's who I'm wired to be, that it's how I serve and worship my God who has placed me here for his glory. We work ultimately for the Lord, and so our diligence means not only that we will be able to support ourselves and care for others around us, but we'll actually be a clear witness to those who are looking on. What does it look like to unbelievers that see Christians that slack off all the time, that are the ones that disappear from their desks, that um, cut corners everywhere? None of that adorns the gospel. It's all a repellent that says these people have no integrity. They do not work in a way that honours their boss or serves anybody, simply themselves. Those around us are watching. Proverbs affirms that work is central to our lives, that we're to work hard. And your work is worthy. I think so often in the past, um, people thought, oh, look, my job's just in the secular realm, and so, you know, it's not really the same value as other things, perhaps even what I do as I serve as a volunteer at church on a Sunday night. That's a complete misconception. Uh, One of the great things that came out of the Reformation in the 1500s from the German reformer Martin Luther and many others who wrote on the back of his efforts was that all work is worthy. This secular, sacred divide that we so often have in our heads that, you know, there's some work that's, you know, for God and there's others that that's just secular work is a nonsense if a person has, is in Christ, then their work is worship to God. As we've seen, the secular becomes sacred. All work is valuable, is invested with meaning as we use the gifts and skills that God has given us to work diligently to whatever end it may be. And so your work is important. In fact, it's sacred before God. Work is now your service, your worship. It's part of who you are. And so whether you're in unpaid work or paid work, whether you're studying, whether you're part-time, you hope to be in another job down the future, all of these things are equally valuable. Don't let the world rank how you spend the hours of your day. Your work and service at home after hours is just as valuable, just as important before God as that for which you might be paid nine to five. Don't dissect things all the time, as so often we do. What it does is downplays And it's crushing to those who are not paid a lot of money or are not seen as important in the world's eyes. God doesn't rank things that way. He doesn't care less whether you're a teacher or an engineer. What he cares is whether you're godly in the role that you've been placed in, whether you are serving in a way that worships him or is self-serving and your identity has become wrapped up in this worldly self-respect don't do it. Jesus has transformed our work and our goal is to enter God's rest in heaven and we'll do that through faith in Jesus and we're not looking for the rewards here. We're longing for that day in heaven where we will be rewarded for any good that we have done, where we look forward to that welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, we thank you that you have clear principles in your word about work. Uh, So often we can be sucked into the views of this world that so often distort and corrupt our thinking about work, let alone alone our motivations and the way we view others. Lord, help us to set these things aside and see that all that we do morning, noon and night is part of our worship of you and to see our work as part of that grand service of our Saviour, and so to work wholeheartedly, diligently, not to be idle, and yet at the same time not to give way to work being a new idol in our lives that takes over. Lord, help us to have it in its place, see its value before you, and live in the light of your word. Help us to take on your wisdom. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.